0: Samaria, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu Tuesday, the sixth of September. Cor Nathan Rarereahau with the old husky voice today. Coming up, Liz Truss will be the new UK Prime Minister after defeating Rishi Sunak in the Tory leadership contest. Across for reaction from the UK, also aid agencies warn Pakistan is in need of long-term assistance after the death toll from the catastrophic floods. As they continue to rise, Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis says a Rotorua emergency housing provider should be investigated over allegations of substandard motel accommodation that's costing millions. We need
1: an investigation not only into that company, but the monitoring that's gone on by government agencies, the funding that has allowed that situation to occur.
0: Uh, maria, welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere, and uh, my voice seems to be leaving me this morning, so I'll, I'll try and make it to six, here we go. Uh, as you heard in the news, the biggest story out of the UK is um, the new leader of the Conservative Party, I don't think she's quite the Prime Minister yet. For more on this and other top stories in the UK, we're joined by our correspondent, Ellie J. Morena, Ellie.
2: Morena, Nathan.
0: What, what's the reaction been?
2: As I said, Liz Truss has been appointed as the next prime minister today, and it has—I mean, it's been a big day. This is the this is one of the top stories that's been going on since about it was midday. It was 12:27 that both Liz Truss and Rishi Soon got uh, told the results of that vote uh, just after that about 12.35 that she was introduced by Sir Graham Brady who's the head of the 1922 committee. Um, he gave a speech and then she gave a speech directly afterwards that mainly uh, it mainly talked about what she would deliver on and I say that because she said the word deliver on so many times in the speech. She said she'd deliver on the NHS, deliver on the cost of living crisis, deliver on the economy all of these and after each bit. I and mean, she had a, a pause for applause as well. Um, there was a little bit of an awkward moment after she said uh, nice things about Boris Johnson, the outgoing prime minister. Um, but eventually people did clap. And we do know that he is still quite popular as we, well.
0: Ellie, we so uh, 20- we've got that audio. Oh, I yes. think yeah, Katrina going to play it.
3: from Kiev to Carlisle.
0: <laughs> oh, the, the first hand clamps are beautiful oh. sorry what what oh. else was she delivering on
4: See what
2: I, oh all kinds of well again at one point she said deliver 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 and then went on to talk about um that cost of living crisis the economy all these things so i think it must have been well it was key to the speech as well she got about 57 um, percent of the vote from the conservative party membership not as big as a as people um, predicted. And it is quite interesting from the reaction. So listening a lot um, to what people are saying just after the announcement radio show i was listening to they asked uh, for feedback in support of liz trust which was quite interesting they said quite a few getting in touch saying they weren't happy they were saying if you are if you are happy about this and get in touch as well also worth noting some of the polls coming up talking about who people in the the whole of the country would want to be prime minister rish sunak was winning in some of those uh, as well and less than less than about one percent of the country um, were involved in this vote so the main question that people have been asking today is to do with the energy crisis, it's with the cost of living crisis. Um, Liz Truss has been quite quiet on this or quite quiet on sort of firm policy, in, aside from saying she'll um, cut taxes and deliver on the economy. We're no, not yet quite sure what will happen and have been told that we can expect uh, a big announcement about this on Thursday, so potentially a package of measures to help people um, She was talking about an energy price freeze, uh, an energy bill freeze as well. So she said today there's no time to lose. And on that, she's absolutely right, because people are really struggling.
0: Ellie, um, we'll we'll forget about politics for a second. Let's go to royals or former royals here. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex, I think everyone knows them as Meghan and Harry. Um, They're due back in the UK, uh, but there's a, a bit of a row there.
2: There is a bit. So they have, they are actually already in the UK. So yes, this story is about Harry uh, and Meghan. They arrived in the country on Saturday, and they were in Manchester today. So Meghan is uh, making a speech. She'll she'll shortly be making a speech at the One Young World 2022 Summit. Um, So that's an event that calls itself um, the world's biggest and most exciting youth leaders event. So you can, I think you buy, you can buy a ticket to go to this as well. And that she's been here as well, doing work with young people about gender equality. Um, the, the reason it's making news is it's the first public appearance here since the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And it's also her first speech in the UK, her first appearance uh, uh- official appearance in the UK since she stopped being a working royal or since they both did. So lots of people as well talking about the fact that they arrived on a commercial plane and that's been mentioned a lot. Also the fact that they just got on a, a train from London to Manchester, uh, but they're not here for long. They're off to Dusseldorf tomorrow to talk about the next Invictus Games, which is the charity that Harry supports. The reason that people are saying it's controversial or the reason people are getting upset is because um, Megan spoke to a magazine in the US called The Cut. She also talked in, um, she's done a podcast in the first two episodes. She's talking about the royal family and the palace. uh, And she said it takes a lot of effort to forgive. And also that she'd previously been uh, restrained when it came to talking about the palace. So referring, of course, to previous comments, uh, the interview with Oprah uh, that everybody watched where she said uh, lots of things about the royal family. And now people also talking about whether or not they'll see Prince William, whether or not they'll go and see the Queen, I mean, it's unlikely and they're saying it's very unlikely they'll do either of those things. Oh, oh, um, but I'll as you said, people <laughs> i mean, people love stories about this. Yeah. Um, people love it. So we'll hear more about it for sure.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Ellie. Uh, Ellie J Leining, uh, joining us live out of the UK and we'll cross uh, later for more reaction too. Let's go to Australia now where the New South Wales opposition is promising to ban phones at schools if it's elected in March in an effort to boost academic standards. Three other states already have a policy in place, but do phone bans even help kids do better at school. The ABC's Isabel Rowe reports.
3: Prying a teenager away from their phone is hard work, and that includes during school hours. Year 11 student Bridie goes to a school in Queensland where phones are technically banned in the classroom. We can have them in our bags, but they have to be put in our locker as soon as we get to school. And then... We can get them again when, you know, we leave school. So, like, basically, for the whole day, they need to be in our locker. And who actually follows that rule? Um, Basically, no one. Like, everyone has it in their pockets or, yeah, in their bags. While her classmates are always carrying and sometimes using their phone in class, she doesn't see it as too big of a distraction. If we go to the bathroom, we can look at social media or we can like, textile parents and stuff. Like, it's it's not a super constant thing that everyone uses it, just everyone has it on them. Year 9 student Edie lives in New South Wales, where the opposition is promising to ban phones in public high schools if it's elected in March. She says at her school, phones are an education tool. You know, we use it for entertainment purposes. But like, we use it so... Like, we rely on it so much in school because... It's almost just as poor as a computer because you use a phone to record videos if you have an assessment task that requires you to film something or you take photos of your work to submit it. Phones are banned in high schools in Victoria, Tasmania and Western Australia. New South Wales opposition leader Chris Minns wants his state to do the same, saying kids can't be trusted to keep phone use to academia only.
4: We can't expect young people who lack the maturity and discipline to turn off social media and look at, for example, a math problem when adults in the same situation find it difficult, if not impossible, to do the same thing.
3: And he says there's evidence children do better at school without their phones.
4: The results from studies in the UK indicate better testing results for 16-year-olds in schools that didn't have mobile phones within the classroom. So the evidence is in from other jurisdictions around the world. I don't want to see New South Wales kids suffer a disadvantage as a result of not making the change. That's why New South Wales Labor is announcing it this, this morning.
3: But many experts think phone bans aren't scientific. Absolutely no real evidence at all. Queensland University of Technology Professor Marilyn Campbell researches cyberbullying among children and hasn't seen any convincing evidence that phone bans work. People say obviously um, you could cyberbully on your phone if you're at school. Yes, that's true, but they also face-to-face bully while they're at school or they can cyberbully while they're home. Some uh, government politicians have also relied on saying, well, academic results must be better. There's been various studies around the world that have shown quite negligible improvements. Or, or exactly the same when the phones were banned. New South Wales Premier Dominic Parate says phones are already banned in 70% of the state's secondary schools and are only allowed in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm.
0: Quarter past five, you're listening to old croaky voice me here at First Up on RNZ National. Um, Just wanted to know, first off, good folks of Dunedin and the Deep South, tell me about your snowfall. Is there enough out there to make a uh, a snowman with? I was jealous of your cold weather yesterday. We just had rain in Auckland, it was awful. Um, And uh, also that story that we've just had there about banning phones. Uh, Do you think banning phones actually helps kids do better in school? Do you think they do? Um, uh, you can text me on your phone. Uh, 2101, uh, but not if you're in class. Well, uh, to Japan now, where the country is preparing to open its doors a little wider to tourists. <laughs> I'm just worried about my voice here. I don't know if I'm going to make it through the show. I'll try. I'll try. It could be the rest of the show with Nicholas Pointon or Barry Guy or Mavash, I'm not sure, it'll be someone anyway. Uh, to Japan now, with the country's preparing to open its doors a little wider to tourists, um, and that's been, of course, uh, the case since the start of the pandemic, it's been closed. Uh, our Tokyo correspondent, Chris Gilbert, explains.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, what's that you might be able to smile right now, it might be the scent of uh, karage, yakitori and nokonomiyaki wafting a little bit stronger over the mm-hmm. Pacific Ocean as Japan pushes its doors open a little bit further to the rest of the world, still one of like, you know, like the top G seven, you know, richest countries in the world or whatever that still has its borders more or less closed uh, in June. They opened them a little bit, being like, okay, if you're a tourist, you can come back to Japan now, or you can visit Japan now, but you have to do uh, book everything through a travel agency, and you have to have a tour guide with you holding your hand the whole time, oh. and you have to jump through all these hoops. So what they've effectively done now is they've ditched the tour guide and they've ditched the PCR tests. From September 7th, You won't have to do a pre-departure PCR test anymore and uh, you won't have to have uh, the, the little person with the flag uh, you know, just walking in front of you everywhere you go. You will still have to book through a travel agency, and it does have to be um, a Japan-based travel agency, such as Japan I Can or Kinky Nippon Tourist, both real travel agencies, yes, that <laughs> recommended for foreign travelers. And uh, then you have to do regular checkups with them uh, when you land in the country. They have to call you and, and bring brief you on safety measures about how things are done here, which is the most Japanese thing I've ever heard. And why is this happening with 25,000, 35,000 cases a day and everyone's already been sick a couple of times no one knows. And in fact, there's a post on um, the Return to Japan support group on Facebook that I follow that has, um, it's kind of got a, a summary of all the updates, and it has a subheading which reads, why is this happening? And there's just no answer written below it, which <laughs> I love because <laughs> nobody knows, but You know, stepping stones, um, Japan often does things like this in increments when there's a big change. It often does in increments. It's probably policy that's just been churned up mid-bureaucracy and it's been sped out the other end. And this is what it looks like. And it also perhaps for, you know, like just image reasons, Japan wants to show domestically, you know, the people here that, you know, they're still going to try and manage people, um, you know, manage foreign tourists. Post-pandemic, uh, mm. as they start to come back into the country through these J- Japanese travel agencies, but I reckon my theory is that by Christmas time, this thing is wide open again.
0: Right. Well, we'll, we'll hopefully see you then. Hey, um, now Sh- yeah. Sh- Shinzo Abe, of course, the former leader of the country, was assassinated. So, uh, a cabinet—they're reportedly in a bit of crisis control uh, amidst Abe's funeral and the Unification Church connections. Tell me about that.
4: Uh, yeah, there's all a bit of a, a brouhaha. G- On at the moment. The Prime Minister Keisha's personal approval rating has um, dropped quite a bit recently. Leveling off now, I think at about 50% in a recent poll. And commentators here are saying that you know the cabinet office is reportedly scrambling to control messages at the moment around, quote, severing the LDP ties with the Unification Church and uh, the increasingly unpopular state funeral for Shinzo Abe. So if we uh, rewind, what happened was Shinzo Abe was shot, of course, two months ago, and he was killed. And uh, the gunman, the gun person who shot and killed him, uh, stated his motive was. You know Abe's alleged ties to the Unification Church, and everyone's bow ties spatter around in circles like it hey, this the Unification Church, and what what the Unification Church is is effectively you know in Japan is not a very Christian country so it's effectively a cult, mm-hmm. um, but it is a very strong church in Korea and uh, in South Korea. And uh, it famously has uh, very strong connections to right-wing parties all around the world. Right. And that's no different here. A survey has just been done. And at a national level and local level, 447 politicians nationwide in Japan have some affiliation with the, with the church, uh, with the group. Of the 150 Diet members, that's the parliament here, 120, that, 120 were with the LDP. Compared to the other parties, fourteen with Nippon Ishin and a couple each with the Constitutional Democrats and the and the uh, the San Sato Party, but most with the LDP. And the survey found that of these 141 l- legislators, uh, most of them uh, attended or sent congratulatory messages to church-related events. Thirty paid for participation fees for events. Twenty-two received help during election campaigns. Nineteen received some form of political donation, and uh, of the LDP's top executives, policy chief Koichi Hagiuda acknowledged that he had also paid up the participation fees for church-related events. So you know they are very connected. Despite the Prime Minister Kishi did saying, "Hey, everyone, just stop hanging out with your old mates over there. It's not a good look for us. Um, it might be harder than that." And the state funeral itself was of Abe, very unorthodox a very unpopular use of taxpayers' money and uh, mounting opposition to it. So it's going to be interesting to see how that eventuates in the coming months.
0: That was Chris Gilbert in Japan. It's 21 past five. Thank you very much for the messages. It's, I know my throat... It, why does it sound so cool when Kim Hill speaks and awful when I speak? But uh, anyway, <coughs> yes, you're listening to Nathan Arruda here on First Up on RNZ National. We've got more on Liz Truss coming up and also Local Government Reporter of the Year. Felix Demire joins us shortly from Rotorua. Time to check in with the Local Democracy Reporting Programme. and We've got something special for you today, live from Rotorua. <coughs> it's the Voyager Award-winning Journalist of the Year, Felix Demire. Felix, got <coughs> <coughs> it. congratulations Uh, by the way i loved you should have seen felix just looking absolutely dapper the dapper of the most dapper at the awards it was a great night (laughs)
5: <laughs> I try my best to try and uh, give the TV genos a run for their money. Yeah, go we're, the, we're the glamorous ones in print.
0: Yeah, as you've seen bolted it in that race, hey, um, We've been hearing a lot <laughs> about the emergency housing situation in Rotorua, also these allegations mm. against visions of a helping hand, which are by TVNZ's Sunday programme. Um, can you just uh, explain to us what's the situation in the city?
5: Well, um, since that programme, it's just absolutely been the talk of the town um, after that excellent report on TVNZ. Um, you know, people are just absolutely shocked to see with their own eyes how, how bad it is uh, in there. And, and not just in um, around the motels, which has got a lot of coverage, but also inside. Um, this is something that we've been covering at the Daily Post for two years or so, but there's nothing like TV to really bring it home. And especially, it's not just Rotorua now, it seems like the, the whole nation is, is, is reeling from from that, watching that programme. Re- people are just basically really worried about that situation.
0: Um, I, I know it's mostly a central government issue, I don't know what the local MP's been up to, but, but what has the, the local council been doing about it?
5: yeah well i mean the the government's been at pains to say you know it's better than the alternative we don't want people sleeping in cars and 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 that sort of thing and 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 regularly point to the previous national government um track record on public housing but um for the for the council side of it uh earlier this year i think it was uh the the council announced it would be taking what it called a compliance approach so that means uh, possibly taking uh, these motels to court if they don't comply with council rules, like the district plan and, and the Resource Management Act um, and the building code. Um, and then we've also had uh, Steve Chadwick, the mayor. She wrote to the social development minister last year uh, calling on action on it, um, which was something that wasn't revealed. It wasn't uh, overt, wasn't in public until it was revealed by the media. And then more recently, um, I've been doing a lot of coverage on a uh, proposal to uh, dispose of uh, seven reserves that would be turned into housing. and that uh, plan originally had six sites to be sold to Kaianga Order, but the council whittled that down so that it would be seven sites and only one would go to Kaianga Order.
0: You mentioned Steve Chadwick. She's, she's stepping down at the next election, which means there's other candidates. Mm. What what have they been saying about the uh, emergency housing issue?
5: That's right. So we've got um, one mayoral candidate. She was on TV yesterday, Tanya Tapsell. Um, she says she'd try to get the council to uh, bump up spending on community safety initiatives. Of course, she'd have to have- get the whole council on board to do that. And she's calling for a sinking-lid policy to, to phase the, the programme out in Rotorua. Uh, we also have Fletcher Tabuto he's saying he's feeling angry about the government's response to on the programme and, and since. And he's called for people um, from out of town who are coming into Rotorua's motels to be sent to Auckland's isolation motels. I'm um, not quite sure the capacity there, whether it would compare to Rotorua, but that's his idea. Um, he's also called for a sinking lid policy. Uh, we've got we've got seven candidates, so I won't go through all of them all, but uh, <laughs> Renald McPherson um, is another mayoral candidate and on his Rotorua Residence and Ratepayers page, there's several posts about calling on the government to act and saying we ne- need a mayor who will dismantle emergency housing and motels. And, uh, you know, also we, uh, you might have seen yesterday uh, Wairaki MP Rawiri Waititi and the National Party called for an immediate investigation following the programme. And basically uh, what I can see is just all of them want action, pressures mounting on the government and everyone's looking to that housing minister, Megan Woods, to see if she'll she'll do something. But... Yeah, I mean, if not, the, the voters of Rotorua, I'd say, um, will be looking for a mayor who can who can make it happen, who can make some change.
0: Yeah, well, you'll be the one to find out. Thank you very much, a Voyager award-winning journalist, Felix Damare.
2: Like sands through the hourglass, so are the
0: days of our lives. Yes, it's the uh, 6th of September... 39 years ago, Paul Simon released You Can Call Me Al. Still hasn't apologised. Uh, Idris Alba is 50. Macy Gray is 55. Rosie Perez is 58. And Roger Waters today turned 79 years old. There you go. Um, catchy names in the news today. The first aircraft to do a loop the uh, loop was on this day in 1913 by Adolphe Pergour in France. And the very first supermarket opened in the world. It was called the Piggly Wiggly. And it was in Clarence Saunders. uh, It was opened by Clarence Saunders in Memphis, in Tennessee. And on this day, 1948, the British uh, Nationality New Zealand Citizen Act was signed into uh, being. In 1948, they basically gave all New Zealand citizens; um, it gave them New Zealand citizenship. So, if you were born here, you were a British subject before that. But on this day, 1948, you were allowed to be a New Zealander. Good for you.
3: Things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I
0: want money. Joining us now from the uh, chilly old studio is Nicholas Poynton. Kia ora, how are you?
6: I feel like I'm in the fridge. Yeah, I'm well, <laughs> thank cold you, I don't know
0: what happens to the thermostat in here.
6: Uh, I just think. Pe- listeners will not believe this I walked in I've adjusted it and it's now self-corrected to 18 degrees It well, is freezing. that's in what here.
0: it says but it won't be hey, uh, tell me this um, lack of women in leadership roles within the uh, space sector
6: we're literally talking about outer space here yes, so yes. my dear colleague of mine um, uh, an aerospace fanatic in went to New Zealand's uh, inaugural National Aerospace Summit mm. and there's plenty of talk there about New Zealand's space industry and I couldn't help but Think what is the space industry so before i came down here i googled it and it came up with things like private flights to space uh sort of commercial endeavors in space the thing is you know setting up satellites yes and then also just commercial property because i guess that is part of the space commercial property oh space okay right yeah (laughs) so uh, anyway anyway Obviously, the big company here is the one founded by uh, Peter Beck. That is Rocket Lab. And we had a, a, a project engineer from Rocket Lab, Sarah Blyde, spoke. And she was quite critical, uh, just what, it was, what she was saying was highlighting a real issue that the lack of women in leadership roles within the sector is holding, holding back the development of future women leaders. She hmm. sort of refers to some figures from the United Nations. Women make up only 20% of the global space industry with only about 10% in leadership roles. And... Uh, She's off the view that it's important for young women entering the industry to see a promising career here, so they have they have someone to essentially to look up for. She says if they don't, she it will result in developing a gender bias. And she yeah. said that's what happened to herself in her own experience. You know, a belief that maybe women were not necessarily as competent as men is because she did not see people like herself in those senior leadership positions. But just on a wider note. The local space industry. Who would have thought? But uh, th- there was a lot of talk, talking up the industry, the potential for it. New Zealand apparently actually has a launch pad. So we are, uh, you know, we're doing our own space exploration here. Obviously, on the more we've got our own launch room
0: as well. <laughs> we've got, we've at Pakaranga. Oh, like, like, we're go. not launching out of Houston anymore. We've got our own one of those. Like That's a job that someone in New Zealand can it does. have. <laughs> someone can launch rockets. It blows my mind.
6: It is bonkers.
0: It is. Anyway, thank you very much. Nicholas Point, and you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Uh, turning to what your New Zealand dollar is being traded for around the world. 61 US cents, 89.6 Australian cents, 61.4 Euro cents, 52.9 British pence, 4.231, 85.7 Japanese yen. And if you're driving through Kenya, uh, you'll be paying uh, one New Zealand dollar for 73.3 Kenyan shillings It's 25 to 6 aid agencies are warning Pakistan is in need of long term assistance as the death toll from the catastrophic floods continues to rise The southern part of the country is the worst affected I spoke to local journalist Muhammad Hussain Khan who is in the province of Sindh uh, where um, which has taken the hardest hit
7: uh, Nathan, if uh, I start with uh, I would say that in Sindh province, death, destruction, and human misery is the second name of this province these days.
0: That's awful. Um, t- tell me about i mean evacuations that have gone on and how far away are they from being complete?
7: Evacuation in different pockets, in different districts of the rain hit uh, areas is underway. And according to government's uh, official figures, Around six lakhs, 72,000 people have already ended up in different relief camps set up by the government and the district administrations of the respective, respective districts.
0: So when they go to these relief camps, where, are they far away from where they would normally live?
7: Uh, usually the relief camps are set up in the government premises like schools and any government departments of, uh, uh, like education or health. Uh, but usually they are close they are in close proximity of the area affected by rains but yes there are locations where the people have ended up uh, on roadside roadside's improvised tents uh, set up by them on their own
0: what what are the most immediate needs that you are seeing that people need
7: the most immediate need for the rain hit population is the healthcare facility the provision of uh, clean drinking water and some uh, quality food. Because they are, there are people who are living in open sky on different, uh, on different uh, intercity or interdistrict roads because they could not re- either reach the relief camps or they did not opt for those relief camps as they wanted to stay close to their village where they work on different farmlands as peasants.
0: And I suppose, too, I mean, <clears throat> that's all their support network is there, all their, all their food is there, and it's hard to leave something like that because they would care about their animals, too, wouldn't they?
7: Yeah, of course. Uh, in a recent incident, three of the rainhead children were run over by a speedy truck on uh, in Badin district where uh, the people, uh, mostly leaving their inundated villages, uh, reached the roadside uh, uh, spots, where they set up their own makeshift tents.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, so sometimes what happens in these is, you know, spreads of illness or something like that is, uh, what What's it like in the camps at the moment?
7: The conditions uh, in relief camps, obviously, uh, I guess, are not satisfactory, you can say, because, you know, the, the scale of disaster is very huge, and even the government is finding it difficult to tackle with. The government is uh, approaching the philanthropists, the business community to seek their assistance in terms of uh, supplies of food, drinking water, and medicines.
0: So, can you just tell us uh, the waters have they started receding at all? And is there any hope inside of that going?
7: Uh, Nathan, actually, uh, the water hasn't started receding because uh, you need to understand a few things. Number one, uh, the Indus River uh, passing through the Sindh province, uh, three barrages. Uh, has been in high flood and medium flood levels so far. It is only a couple of days back that the water flows in River Indus at Guddu Barrage had started receding, but its impact would be passed on uh, to the downstream barrages after a few days. So that's why the water flows uh, within the river remain uh, a high flood level state. But the point is, the areas that were affected by uh, rains, the uh, monsoonal heavy rains, and the hill torrents coming from a neighbouring province called Balochistan.
0: That's Mohammed Hussein Khan, who's currently in the Sindh province in Pakistan. (laughs) Uh, 21 to 6. Nolene says, morning, and Nathan, wishing you all the very best with your interesting voice. It is interesting today. i got to say that. Janice says, You sound bloody terrible think she'll be may. home, eh? Um, I, yeah, it's hard to get anyone up at this time, Janice, to be, so I've got to be here. But anyway, um, yeah, I've rammed a thing up my nose. It's OK. I'm not endangering anybody. Uh, Ollie Barrett, but thank you very much for the feedback, everybody. Ollie Barrett joins the show from London to discuss Liz Truss's win in the Conservative Party leadership race. And also we're going to hear from Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis about how she would help these people in the emergency housing. Uh, how can they get people out of that situation? <laughs> Feast noise of RNZ, the morning report team. It's Corin Dan who's here now to talk us through the happening on the flagship show. Kia ora, how are you?
8: Kia ora, Nathan. Nathan. Uh, hope you're feeling okay. The old voice is a in. It's weird. It's
0: just my voice. It's just everything else is fine. It's
8: annoying. I could probably run um, a sub
0: four minute more.
7: <laughs>
8: no, no well, I'm that, well, I'm pleased to hear that. I am Thanks. pleased to hear that. Okay. Uh, listen, we will be uh, covering off all that weather uh, business this morning. Obviously, the snow in the central North Island looks like it's causing some problems. Get the very latest on that. Uh, reaction to the government's gang proposals around seizing assets. Also hear from Kerry Allen, the Justice Minister. The new UK Prime Minister, Liz Truss, will hear what's going on there in the UK with our correspondence uh, with her election via the Conservative members, only about 140,000 of them, uh, but she got the most of the votes. Uh, housing too in Rotorua, the ongoing emergency housing uh, situation there uh, will get some more attention this morning. And the loneliest tree in the world and on an island, it's about what... Uh, 750 kilometres kilometers south of New Zealand mainland, oh. a tall pine that sits by itself on an uninhabited island. It's helping figure out climate change things. So, it's like a very good trip.
0: <laughs> Thank you. i just got to make a correction. I couldn't run a four-minute mile, but I think I could bike one. There
8: you go. I'm in there.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, as you just heard, um, big news out of the UK. Liz Truss is going to be the country's new Prime Minister. It's our correspondent, Ollie Barrett, that I get to say kia ora to right now. Kia ora, Ollie. How are you? Oh. There we go. I think he's there. Hey, um Ollie, you you've got me. There we go. What what's the reaction I'm been? I got you, yeah. Oh yes, there we go. What's the reaction been so far to Liz Truss winning this race that's been going on for ages?
9: It has been going on for ages. I mean, one of the uh, reactions has been that actually the result was slightly closer, I think, than many people had been expecting. Because as you you say, it's been going on for ages, but not just going on for ages. It's been going on for ages with us having a pretty good sense that Liz Truss was going to win. And And that has actually led to quite a lot of criticism of the Conservative Party for holding this very long contest at a time when there are so many issues for the government of the day to be dealing with. Um, And so that's formed part of the reaction, a surprise that it was slightly closer than some people had been expecting. And now, really, there's an expectation that Liz Truss is going to have to move very quickly on a number of these issues, not least the cost of living crisis, which the UK is dealing with and facing, uh, much like many other countries around the world. Some polling today has confirmed another element to this, which is that although Liz Truss has won quite uh, convincing victory over Rishi Sunak with the party membership that actually she's quite unpopular with the broader electorate so she's got a lot of work to do now to convince the part, the, the country uh, that she's the right person to lead um, the government and the country uh, because as you say up to now she's really won this victory via the party membership and a previous phase of the competition of the contest with uh, conservative MPs. Now the job she's got on her hands as well as governing is to try and convince uh, the, rest of the, uh, the rest of the electorate that she's got a new audience now to try and convince that she's the right person for the job.
0: Ollie, I see Priti Patel has already resigned and she's gone. How different do you think Liz Truss's cabinet will look to the one that Boris Johnson had?
9: I I think it will look quite different in in many ways because it seems, and she could uh, surprise us all, but it seems that she is minded to not stuff it with um, uh, people from across the party, that she might be uh, looking to go down the route of uh, putting her own supporters and her allies into a large number of the key cabinet posts. Sometimes what prime ministers do is uh, bring people in from all wings of the party to try and unify the party. And that's what some conservatives are calling for her to do. But if she opts to actually stick with loyalists for now, it may mean that some of those big beasts from Boris Johnson's uh, party, uh, cabinet, excuse me, who backed Rishi Sunak, that they might find themselves out of a job. As you say, Priti Patel says that she is resigning as Home Secretary and it's her decision and that she wants to move to the back benches. Now, that, that may be partly true, but part of it will also be that she's getting indications from Liz Truss that she's not going to get a job um, in, the, in the cabinet. So So we know that at least one of the big jobs is going to be changing. It's pretty clear that the Chancellor, the Finance Minister role, uh, is not going to go to its incumbent at the moment, Nadine Zahawi. It's definitely not going to go to the man who had it before that, who was Rishi Sunak. So we we know that, that some of the biggest posts in government are going to change. And so inevitably it will look and feel different to Boris Johnson's administration.
0: Let's wildly speculate, Ollie which I know is not what, what we do in reporting, but it's, if, uh, uh, let's just say a general election, let's just say it gets called in, in a month's time or something. Liz Trust, does she win that election?
9: The polling tells you that she doesn't. And that's one of the uh, the reasons why I think you have to assume that actually she won't call a snap election in the next month. There's been a lot of speculation about that. And, you know, uh, the, the, I think the reason for that is that sometimes new leaders do come in and they feel they want to get their own mandate and uh, get their own backing from the public. Well, well the polling tells you that Liz Truss would be very unwise to do that anytime soon. Now, it may be that she gets into office and rolls out the cost of living plan that is Is well received and she gets a big bounce in the polls. And then you can see a a, a slightly more plausible scenario in which Liz Truss recovers ground against the opposition Labour Party in the polls, perhaps even takes a lead over them, gets ahead of them again in the polls like the Conservatives were not so long ago. And in that scenario, you can see her going to the public earlier than she has to. But actually, in today's speech uh, in front of Conservative Party members, she she seemed pretty clear that she's aiming for that uh, next election. In 2024, which is uh, when we would expect it under normal circumstances, uh, and that does give her, if that is when the next election is is going to be, it gives her the chance, at least, to turn things round when it comes to polling and when it comes to public perception. I mean, the other side of that coin is that there are plenty of pitfalls over the next couple of years. Just the cost of the yeah. living crisis is, is just one of them that is going to make her life very very difficult indeed. So, That's I right mean, the will. opposite is also true. She could see she could see polling get worse from here rather
0: than better. (laughs) Thank you very much, Ollie Barrett, joining us here from the UK. You'll hear more about that across the day here at RNZ National. Meanwhile, National, our political party, is calling for action over claims that emergency housing tenants in Rotorua have been mistreated by government-funded organisation, which is set up to help them. Visions of a Helping Hand has received almost $14 million from the Ministry of Social Development since its inception in 2017, but tenants told TVNZ the living conditions are far from fit.
1: Look, absolutely. That story made my heart hurt. We need an investigation not only into that company, but the monitoring that's gone on by government agencies, the funding that has allowed that situation to occur. So, National is calling for an independent investigation. I think you'd have to have a heart made of stone not to have been moved by some of the stories in that expose last night. Just yeah. awful stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, any decent human would find it, un, you know, totally unreasonable to expect families to try and live and make a life in, in those conditions that they had there in, in the motel. I mean, some of the didn't, didn't even have cooking facilities there. Sometimes there for months or more cases a year. How would you progress things for those people if if you are the next government?
1: Well, I think what this proves is that one-word slogans like Kiwi Build won't deliver. We need to get to the root cause of housing issues. So National would take a multi-faceted approach. First, free up some of the restrictions that have stopped houses being built, both in the Resource Management Act and the Building Act, and making sure that land can be developed and the infrastructure is there. Second, support private landlords by removing some of the tenant taxes and restrictions that have stopped them investing in affordable secure rentals then partner with community housing providers to get more social housing built fast and finally take a social investment approach to invest in targeted interventions to help those individuals with really complex needs it's far too many words for a slogan Nathan, but I think what we've seen is with the slogan approach, we've had an explosion in emergency housing. Last night, around 4,800 children were put to bed in a motel room, and that's not good enough. It's a massive failure and an indictment on the government.
0: You know, the housing stock thing's an interesting one, though, because within 800 metres of my house, I'll tell you this, we've got a 24 housing development that's gone in next to us, the Kāinga Order. There's another one which is going to be 56 houses over there, so there's a lot of stock that that's coming in. and And the private landlord's thing is nice, but the landlords, the rent's too expensive. I'm just wondering though, how is that going to actually help those people that are in the hotels?
1: Look, I welcome more houses coming on from Kaing but some context here. The social housing wait list has quadrupled under labour. It's now up over twenty four thousand. So you have to ask, Where have those people come from? And in many cases, what's happened is they've been squeezed out of the private rental market because rents have gone up, on average, $140 a week since Labour came to office. So we do need to look at improving private rental supply so there is more competition and so people have more options. The government's been warned at every turn that if you impose more costs on landlords, it's tenants who end up paying the price, both through higher rents and being pushed out into state housing or emergency housing, that's unfortunately exactly what has transpired. So we have to take a holistic approach here, yes to social housing, but we also have to recognise the role that private landlords can play as well.
0: It seems more like they'd make the landlords privately, are are currently making financial decisions rather than moral decisions then?
1: Well I think that it's the government that's making the moral decision, that it's okay To let children be raised in motel rooms for months on end. And I think that that is an indictment that is going to lead to all sorts of social failure. What hope do those kids have of regularly attending school, of having access to health services, of having a sense of community and a sense of safe and secure housing when they're being witnesses to intimidation, to violence? That is no solution. And actually, it's not enough for Labor to lay the blame on National. They've had five years, and this is what they've delivered.
0: There's a lot of houses to replace, though, in that that time. let's talk about the Helen Clark Foundation. This was a really interesting report. I'd get your thoughts on this. The Helen Clark Foundation's released a report calling for the legal purchase of a methamphetamine substitute and to decriminalise methamphetamine use. Do you agree with this?
1: Well, what I agree with in the former Prime Minister's recommendations is her idea that the health programme that's really worked in Northland to get addicts off p and to get them clean, that programme should be expanded. Yeah. It's actually a programme that's had bipartisan support from both Labour and National, and the Greens, I think. Uh, Labour campaigned on expanding it. It hasn't done that. National also campaigned on expanding it. Obviously, we're not in government, so we haven't been able to do so. But I think that at the core of this issue is everyone can agree, that we need to have better access to addiction services, so that we can take a health approach to these issues. But in the absence of those services, it's very difficult to see progress happening.
0: Yeah, so that's the Tiara Oranga one, isn't it, in Northland? So, so you you would be in favour of trying to fund more things like those. Get more more cash goes that way.
1: Look, absolutely. Um, Tiara Oranga is a program that has results, and to give you a sense of it, the funding that has gone into it as I understand it, is roughly equivalent to what has gone to the Mongrel mob for their drug rehab program. Yeah. And look, we should be funding the programs that actually get results. And Tiara Oranga has a proven track record So let's scale that sort of
0: thing up I'm a fan of anything that gets results in that It's an absolute scourge, isn't it? Hey, let's have a look at this The the government, um, what do you make of this uh, Proposal that came out? The the government giving police More powers to seize assets obtained Through crime Did you think they went far enough? Do you think they're targeting The right areas? what What do you think?
1: Well, look, we'll take a closer look at that legislation. But broadly, we support giving police powers to go after assets that are gotten illegally and to go after gangs for using crime to pad their own pockets. So original legislation in this area was brought forward by National Proceeds of Crime Act. I understand that it's been pretty effective and if there's more we can do to enhance it then in principle we support that goal.
0: Right but you, you would go further if you had a look and thought there was something missing? Well if we thought there was
1: something missing or if we thought there were problems with the bill of course we would speak up on that uh, and the legislative process will allow be a select committee hearing and there'll be an opportunity for us to hear from a uh, large number of experts in the area. And as the opposition, we'll do our job. If there's issues that need to be fixed, we'll speak up.
0: Finally, uh, the, the government's reviewing the COVID traffic light settings next week. What do you think? Time to move to green? Is it? Is it time to get rid of mask requirements?
1: Look, I do think so. I think that we are ready now for people to move to an era of personal responsibility and personal choice where people can decide whether they wish to wear a mask I think there's still a case for masks in health settings, aged care, hospitals, that sort of thing. But largely, I think, you know, the era of the traffic light is over. And I think New Zealanders are ready to step up and take personal responsibility rather than restrictions mandated by the government.
0: That's Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. Um, Finally this morning, some of your feedback, lots of voice feedback. Mike also wants to know what happened to Herbert the Frog. I don't know. Herbert was there we got photos Mike and then um it was a southern bell frog we found out and then Herbert was gone so I don't know perhaps Herbert or Herbert uh, may have found another frog to run away with Well, someone kissed it there's a prince out there um another one forget the snowman what about your voice yeah and uh mobile phones with parental control should be fine well at the morning report hosts are about to saunter in with their smooth vocals bring you all that's important. Uh, from all of us here at First Hub, have yourselves a wonderful day. I'm going to drink the rest of this lemon, honey and ginger, just straight not adding any hot water uh, 10 glasses, Pfft, one uh, Anyway, we'll be back in your ears Apoopo